welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, I have a question for you today as you tune in. Have you achieved greatness? Now, even as I say that, some of you are like, well, greatness, I mean, that's, that's kind of, okay, I have a few more followers on my YouTube channel, but that's, you know, not really greatness. Uh, greatness is for people that are older, right? Maybe you're a kid and you're like, no, no, like greatness, that's not something kids do. Or maybe that's for just for a select group of people and the rest of us ordinary people in our ordinary lives with our not so extraordinary talents or skills. I mean, that's really greatness is not for us. And you might think that actually, even as we start a series over this month of our All Together Now services, um, where we're kind of really focusing in on the fact that we are a multi-generational community of people tuning in. And so even if this is your first time and whatever age you might be, um, we're, uh, we're taking a look at different stories of greatness and saying, what is the secret of greatness? That I would encourage you to say, no, 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 don't tune out and think, oh, that's, that couldn't be me. Because actually, well, over the next five weeks, each of us is going to talk about a different person. Uh, they're not someone from the Bible or whatever. They're just someone, an ordinary person like you or me. Maybe some of them you've heard of, but I would guess a lot of them you haven't, or maybe you've heard their names, really didn't know much about them. And then what you will find, interestingly enough, is that in their stories of greatness, Almost all of them had lives of hardship, difficulty, and circumstances that many of us would say, well, there's no way any greatness or even anything good can come out of that. And I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. Because even in difficult times, even if you're someone who's saying, never mind great, I'm barely scratching the surface. I'm just, if good seems like a pipe dream right now, that these are stories that can actually give us hope of people whose, whose lives was changed by their faith. And then through their faith, they changed the lives of others. And so it's my pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. John M. Perkins. Now, John Perkins, he's actually 90 years old. He was born in 1930 in rural Mississippi. And at that time, uh, he was uh, a black person born in a black family. And so what that meant is as a black family, your way to make a living was to be sharecroppers, to work picking cotton and harvesting other crops on the fields and on the land of white landowners. If you were a black person, you didn't own any land. You were able to make a very small amount of money. And when we talk about small amount of money, in today's dollars, it would be like if you were a family of often five or six or even up to 10, because maybe many kids or multiple families living on the same um, farm or same property that you'd be making $100 a month in today's dollars. Like that's how much money you would have to get by for the entire month. For some of us, that's a cell phone, not even a cell phone bill. And so that's what uh, it was like if you were living in rural Mississippi. But Mississippi at that time, even more so, was a state that was very racially divided and not just divided, but where there was, it was unequally divided that if you were a black person um, in Mississippi, um, you had, there were separate everything. Even here we have a picture of a separate drinking fountain, but there were separate schools. There was separate entrances. If a building was supposed to be shared by both, uh, whites had one entrance, blacks had a different one. Um, economic opportunities, anything that you could think of that could be divided was divided. And if you were a black person or a black family, you did not have the advantage. Even, you know, we signs like this, we wash for white people only. So even services or businesses had the option to say, well, no, we, weren't, we won't serve you. And this was the world that John M. Perkins was born into. In John's case, though, um, it wasn't just that he was a black person born into Mississippi in 1930. 
But John's life tragedy continued, difficulty continued. When he was just three months old, he was the youngest of five children. His mother passed away from malnutrition. And so at the age of, uh, at three months old, he wasn't even old enough to remember or know his mother died. And shortly after his mother died, his father left. And so five children on their own went to live with their grandmother and they became, uh, and became sharecroppers. John, even at the young age of eight, began working, picking cotton and, and running businesses, trying to do whatever he could to bring in just enough money so that his family together and his siblings could have the next meal. He said that even at the age of 10, he figured out pretty quickly, it's going to be impossible for a black person to own any land or run any business. And if you don't own any land or run any business, you're not going anywhere. This is going to be your life. You know, tragedy actually struck John's uh, life when he was 16 years old. His older brother, Clyde, uh, had gone to the, to the army and had come back and was in, uh, in the downtown area of uh, Mendenhall, which is the town that they lived in in Mississippi. And he was hanging around with some friends, getting ready to go to a movie. And the Perkins family were known as sort of people who never stood, stood down from anyone, <laughs> even when they should. And there was a, a white sheriff who was patrolling the area where, where the area of town and the time of day where blacks were allowed to come out and congregate and go to movie theaters. And apparently his brother Clyde was yelling at somebody in, in an argument and the sheriff called out to him and said, hey, be quiet. And his brother Clyde turned around and spoke back to the sheriff, at which point he got hit in the head with a, with a club. And as the sheriff went to hit him again, Clyde did what he should never do and he grabbed it to stop it. And the sheriff let it go and stepped back and pulled out his gun and shot him twice in the stomach. Now, John was in another part of the town and he had heard, got word that his brother had been shot and was on his way to the hospital. So John is 16, piled in the car with a couple other friends and they raced to the hospital. And he said, I'll never forget getting into that room. There was a doctor there. There was about eight other black people who were friends of Clyde and family. And I was holding my brother in, his, in my arms, watching him die while the sheriff who had shot him stood in the room, looking at everybody in the eye, making sure there was no more trouble to be had that night. He said, waves of anger came into my life at that night, but it was replaced by a deadness. And he basically concluded, I've got to get out of this place. There's nothing good for me in Mississippi anymore. There's no way to make it here. Um, there's no way to get justice. He said, even when his brother got shot, nobody inquired. There was no investigation. There were no questions. The assumption was the officer probably did what he was supposed to do. The black man did what he wasn't supposed to do. And that's how it ended up. And he said, this is what life is like. And he had had enough. And so he decided to go to California. California was one of those places where um, there was a little more equality, where some of the desegregation laws had actually been put into practice and there were just more economic opportunities. And John said he was leaving Mississippi and headed to California with three convictions in his heart. One was making money is the path to freedom. He said, I had seen it enough from the time I was eight years old, working on land that somebody else owned, giving away 50% of what you made to them and barely living on the rest. I knew you had to be able to own stuff and buy stuff and have work for yourself or even better, have other people work for you. So he said, making money is my path to freedom. The second conviction was all white people were to be hated. He said, I was moving quickly to a place where every person who was white was hated in my books. And thirdly, he said, God and the church were meaningless to him. And that last one, you might think, well, where did that come from? Here's what he said. I had seen Southern brutality and the church had kept silent about it. I was convinced that the problem of my people were political problems. 
And the black church I knew with its emotion and all never did anything, never said anything about that either. Obviously, if I had no use for the black church, I could hardly even imagine something called a white Christian. It was totally impossible for me to imagine that the white church, the private club of oppressors, had anything to do with reality and justice. And so John went on his way with those convictions on to California. And the truth was, he actually managed to build himself a pretty good life. He married a, a young woman named Vera May, and they had a few kids, and things got really good for them. He was actually able to buy a house. Vera was running a business out of that house. He was running a couple of businesses. They were making money. And he had basically established for himself the dream or the thing that he thought that he needed that would actually give him independence, comfort. And in a sense, he said, I was a long way from the problems of Mississippi. I had actually achieved it. And Vera May, even when she was marrying John Perkins, you know, her family said, well, the Perkins aren't so good to hang around with. They had proved them wrong too. Here they had built themselves quite a nice life. But John said this, success and money were my religion, but I was not happy. I had no peace inside. And this is where John was at until he met someone who would change his life. You know, Vera May had actually started to going to church a little bit and he would occasionally go with her. But he said his son Spencer started going to these Bible studies for kids down the road at this church. And as that began to happen, something changed in John's life. And here's what he said. I watched our son. I could see something was developing in him that was beautiful. Something I knew nothing about. I'd had no real experience before of seeing Christianity at work like that in a person's life at work in a way that was beautiful and good. Spencer kept after me to go with him to his Bible class. And because I loved him so much, I finally decided to go. Besides, his life had become so radiant, I wanted to go and find out what they were teaching him down there. I found they were teaching the Bible. Shortly after that, and one Sunday morning as the minister was preaching about Jesus and that he had come to offer forgiveness and new life, John realized in that moment, wait, Christianity isn't a title. It isn't a thing that describes someone, oh, they're this or they're that. He said, Christianity is a way of life where Jesus actually begins to come into your life and he lives a new life through yours, that your life completely changes. He said, I realized my motivation and my idea that money was the way out. I had actually had it and I still had no peace inside. And Jesus was offering me actually a new way to have peace on the inside and a new life to follow, a new passion to pursue. And so that morning there in the church, John said he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he said, okay, take over. And as Jesus began to change his mind and his heart, he began to read scripture. He began to, he said, two amazing things happened. He said, I met black people whose lives had been changed by Jesus. And I met white people whose lives had been changed by Jesus. And my whole way of seeing the world began to change. I realized that Jesus had given me a whole new purpose uh, than just making money and having a comfortable life. But you know, things started to get stirred up again as Jesus began to ask John to follow him somewhere he never expected. And this is what he says. I couldn't escape a conviction growing up inside of me that God wanted me back in Mississippi. 
to identify with my people there and to help them break the cycle of despair. Not by encouraging them to leave, but by showing them new life right where they were. See, John discovered something about this life with Jesus, that it wasn't just about the forgiveness and grace that Jesus was offering John. It wasn't just a new way of seeing the world, but Jesus was actually inviting him to let go of a dream of a comfort and a big home and being away from the problems and the troubled life that he had growing up, that Jesus was actually saying, hey, my love is strong enough to actually bring you back. And you have a responsibility not just to follow me, but if you're following me to wherever I lead you. And I'm leading you back because I care about the place that you left. I care about your people even more than you do. And so he and Vera May, they sold their house. They moved their kids back to Mississippi, back to Mendenhall, to the small town that he grew up in. They bought a house in the black area of town, which was a much smaller place than they were ever living in before. And they began to work and live there. You know, things got more interesting for them, but it definitely got harder too. John, as he began to teach, um, and he had become a pastor by then, he began to teach uh, children the Bible because he saw what it had done in his own son's life. But he began to go around to every church he could trying to tell them, hey, the love of Jesus means that equality has to come to Mendenhall. The love of Jesus means that the walls that are dividing race have to come down. The love of Jesus means that civil rights have to come to people who don't have them. And he said, I was shocked at how many people were not interested or even more so were against that message. He said, some white people obviously were not interested in that message. He said, but many of the black churches I went to were not interested either because they were like, hey, life is the way it is and we've all found a way to just survive in it. Why are you bringing this disruption? Well, one day John got a call about a young boy who had come out of church one morning. And if, you know, if you're, he was about 16, and if you're a 16 year old kid, imagine yourself walking out of church one morning and the police are waiting for you and they arrest you, they put you in a car, they beat you up and they take you to jail because you called a white girl and asked her out on a date. And so John got the news that young Roy, uh, I think Roy Hobbs was his name, was in jail for this. And so John and another pastor uh, and a friend of his from California, a white man named Doug, named Doug um, had come with him and they said, let's go to the jail, let's get this guy out. And a whole bunch of kids had heard about it too, word had traveled around. He said, so now I have a bunch of teenagers coming with me to the jail, some of whom are my own junior high kids, like my own kids. So he thought, okay, well, we don't know what we're going to do, but we just got to get there and say, this boy should not be in jail. Well, they kind of surprised the jailer who was there and out of fear, he threw them all in jail. So now 17 of them are in jail, plus this young man who was already in before and everyone's freaking out. And, and it was one of those things where they didn't know what to do. So he just decided, well, I'm going to throw them in jail. Well, John finally convinced him to let the kids go after uh, several hours. But by this time, hundreds of people had gathered around the jail outside. And so now John and his friend Doug from California are in jail. The, the, the uh, police are not releasing him. All of the people are outside kind of chanting and protesting and saying to get him out. John says he was in that jail. He said, I could hear them all. In fact, I could see them all from the second floor. And I was looking out the bars at them. And he said, in that moment, I felt like the Holy Spirit of God come up to me. And he said, I knew it was time for a sermon. He said, so I began to preach. And I told them two things. He said, one, we are never going to return violence for violence. We cannot take revenge. But then he also said, we cannot sit by and let this keep going on. He said, we will not fight with violence, 
but we will not let this go. So he said, even as I was preaching, we had this idea, let's begin to boycott all of the stores. It was Christmas time. And so instead of kids going home that night and making signs for Santa, milk and cookies, they made signs that said, don't shop here anymore. Here's one of the signs. Don't buy where you can't work. Or we're dreaming of a black and white Christmas. And kids and uh, other black people all over the towns who didn't even know what was going on started to protest and say, we're not going to buy anything at Christmas from store owners because who wouldn't hire them, but they just wanted their money. And sure enough, the store owners started putting pressure on the police to say, let these guys out of prison. Well, they finally did get out of prison. But as they came out, they said, listen, we started to march because they said, we need civil rights. And some of the civil rights, they said, we need equal opportunity. 30% of the people in this town are blacks, but very, a far less percentage of them are actually employed in good jobs. We have almost nobody in public office and government or policing. We don't have equal uh, opportunities for schools. Some, the white schools have way more funding than the black schools. They need to be desegregated. And they said, we need to be able to vote. And these were pictures from some of the marches that were going on at that time. Many of the students from a nearby college got involved as well. Now, the police didn't do anything, didn't throw anybody in prison, but John said, we noticed they were taking pictures of all the marches and protests and they were writing down names. And he said, we didn't know why, but we soon found out. About a month later and after one of the protests, John got a call that the busload of college students going back to their college after a protest had been taken over by police. Many of the students had been beaten up and they had been thrown in prison. So John and his friend Doug, that's him in the middle, and another Reverend, Reverend Curry, said, we got to go down and help these students. I mean, we were the ones that helped them get involved in these protests. But John said, we were worried that the same thing would happen to us. So he said, we, sure enough, we drove on the highway. We crossed the county line into Rankin County, which was even a, a more oppressive and racially divided county than Mendenhall, where, than where Mendenhall was. He said, but nobody did anything to us. We got to the jail, but as soon as we got to the jail, we realized it was a trap. He said, two officers grabbed us and threw us in jail. And then 12 policemen came into the cell with us. And for the next several hours, he said, we were beaten so badly. Doug and I lost consciousness several times during that. It happened so badly. And he said, it was so, he said, I, I literally thought I was going to die. His wife came to see him. And there was a police officer standing there and she should have put her arms around him and whispered and it came close so that they could hear each other without the police officer hearing. He says, he said, Vera, you have to get me out of this tomorrow. I don't think I'll last another night. They're going to kill us in here. You know, even after all of that and they got out of prison, they were charged by the police. And you know what the charge was against John? That he had convinced a minor to stay in prison when they were originally locked up with his junior high kids by the police. And then later there was a charge of disturbing the peace. The sheriff and all of his uh, uh, highway patrol who did the beating that night lied, said they didn't do any of it. And ultimately none of it was heard well in court and their case was thrown out. And John was still left with a charge of disturbing the peace. I know it's so hard for us to think about and imagine what it would be like to be in a situation like that, to feel like not only you have enemies, but to feel like there's no hope of getting justice for you, that nothing can be done simply because of the color of your skin. And I got to thinking, what would Jesus say to John M. Perkins about his life, about his situation, if Jesus was the one who led him back there? Well, interestingly, Jesus 
in the time that he walked this earth, the people he talked to, actually the, the details were different, but in many ways they were people under the same kind of oppression as the people, the black people were in Mendenhall. They were people that were occupied by a brutal military empire called Rome that who were oppressed, who were taxed heavily up to 95% and who at any point in time could be thrown in prison or, or lose their life for, for saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or looking the wrong way. And yet to that group of people of which Jesus was one, Jesus said something that is so stunning. And I want you to hear it as the scriptures read for us today. Good morning, my name is Bree. I'm from the Vaughn site. This morning I'll be reading the scripture from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, you can't be serious. Love your enemies. Jesus was actually pointing out that in that day, there was a saying. And in fact, the rabbi's teaching was, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Because their enemies were doing the same kinds of things to them that the people that John was dealing with in his town and all over parts of the United States at that time and really all over the world. And Jesus' message was, love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. I don't know about you, but that's actually a hard message to hear. To be honest, when I've been, as I've been reading John's story and listening to him and watching some of his, uh, his videos, I'm feeling anger and hate well up in me. I, I don't know about you, but I want the story to end like a lot of the superhero movies me and my kids watch, where somebody comes in and cracks heads and gets revenge. That even though we don't want to, eventually we have to use violence. We have to use force. That's the only way for good to triumph over evil. And you know, John, in a sense, thought that too. He said when he was lying in that cell, in and out of consciousness, he said to himself, if I had a bomb right now, I would set it off in this place and blow everything up. He said, I could feel the same hate that was directed to me welling up in me. And so what did Jesus say to John M. Perkins? Because he did, he did speak. And I want you to watch this video as John tells the story because about a year after that, when John finally got out of prison and he was still in courts, his health actually got worse. And some of the effects, the after effects from what he experienced that night, he had a heart attack and then major ulcers in his body. And he said to the point his body was shutting down. And so he was in a hospital bed for three months. And in that place, Jesus came and spoke to him. And I want you to watch this video that describes what he said to him. In that place, Jesus met John. 
And in his book, Let Justice Roll, he says this, in that moment, the spirit of God helped me to really believe what I had so often professed, that only in the love of Christ is there any hope for me or for those I had once worked so hard for. After that, God gave me the strength and motivation to rise up out of my bed and return to Mendenhall and spread a little more of his love around. Oh, I know humanity is bad, depraved. There's something built into us that makes us want to be superior. If the black man had the advantage, he'd be just as bad, just as bad. So I can't hate the white man. The problem is spiritual, black or white. We all need to be born again. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, this victory of love overpowering hate, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. And so John returned back convinced that the love of Jesus was not only strong enough to say, I'm going to give you a better purpose than just trying to make money. And money isn't the only way out. That I'm someone who's going to actually uh, give you a new purpose. That I'm someone who's so relevant to your life that I am so interested in the cause of the white and the black people in rural Mississippi. And my love is strong enough to wash away your hatred. But you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting and it's so important for us because we can hear this words of like, love your enemies and we can think, oh, that means don't hate anymore. And that's true. That's what God did in John's heart. It means forgiveness. And yes, it does. And that's what God was leading John to do. But it also means action. It doesn't mean that we just let things go. He said, remember, we don't return hate for hate. We don't return violence for violence, but we do campaign for change. If we actually love not only black people, but also white people, and we hate the systems and the sin that is perpetuating the conflict and the hatred, then we will, to love our enemies is actually to take action to do something about it. And this is so important. And if you read the rest of what John and Vera May began to do, they didn't just preach the gospel of Jesus and his power to forgive and to turn hatred into love. They said, if we truly love Jesus, we're also going to do these things. We're going to fight in court for equal rights, for fair trials. We're going to march and we are going to boycott. We are going to get the attention. And John said, the reason we marched was not just to show unity with our black community, but to compel our white brothers and sisters who also claim to be Jesus followers to move them to action. We had to show them we were demonstrating we need you. He also said we had to start co-ops. You see, it wasn't enough just to educate a black person, he said. He said, we could be educated as black people, which means we could read and write and speak. He said, but for many of us, all that meant was we would be better servants in the houses of people who owned what we were doing. He said, we needed to teach black people how to run a business, how to manage finances, how to accumulate resources and manage people. And so he said, we started businesses. We started a health clinic. 
He said it was a health clinic that we took over that had a front door for whites and a side door for blacks. And the waiting area for whites was furnished and large and carpeted. And there was a back room for blacks and no black person could be served until all of the white people had been served. And so he said, the first thing we did when we took over that clinic was we tore down the wall and we carpeted the whole area and we served all people, black people and white people, equally whoever had a need. But we also started stores, grocery stores, and places that people could work together to actually learn how to be managers and business owners and how to turn resources into wealth. He said, all of this was a part of what we did. He said, we were also changing mindsets. He said, we lost that case in court about us being wrongfully accused. The, the judges decided on a two to three majority, the police had done nothing wrong to us. But you know what we won? He said, the black people of Mendenhall saw a young black woman as a lawyer standing up there and arguing with a white justice establishment. They saw a black man go into court and come out without being thrown in jail again. And he said, that was a victory. He said, we were changing the mindsets. You know, many years later, the governor of Mississippi would say to John, John, we needed you to fight for equal rights for blacks, not just for the black people in our town, but so we as white people could have our minds changed as well. And so what does that mean for us as we are people? You know, maybe there's some aspects of this story that you can relate to. Any of you that have experienced racism directly, for sure you can relate to this. But maybe most of us, I know certainly in our home, and I would say with my kids and my family, we'd say, well, I don't have any enemies. You know, it doesn't seem to be people who are actively against me. But if we take John's story seriously, we say Jesus' call to love our enemies is not just about forgiveness, not just about turning hatred into love. It's also about action. And so as you reflect on this story, I just wanted to leave you with a couple of things to think about. For some of you, it may be simply having an attitude that works to include the excluded. All of you in the schoolyard, all of you, you know, who are eventually going to head back to school, I'm sorry about that. But you are going to face and be in, in contexts where naturally, we just see this as the natural way of human beings to include and exclude. That we would be people that say, no, we are going to be includers. We are going to be those who open the doors, who tear down walls that separate. This is what it means to love enemies, to ensure that there is no one treated as someone as an outsider. And so what does that mean to think of somebody specific in your life, on your street, in your class, in your schoolyard, you know, or in, in our church or in your church community where, you know, they kind of seem to be on the outside and others seem to push them there. What does it mean to include them? For others of us, it's speaking up for those who need other people to carry their cause. Not just saying, oh, that's good that they're doing that, but actually to say, hey, we need to speak up. And any of you that, um, that are older, that are adults, and you have kids at home, ask them about this. Talk to them about what they think is going on in the world around us right now, what they feel compelled to do, because they probably have a better clue than we do about where we need to start and who we need to speak up for. And what does it mean for those of us that have privilege and power to use whatever influence we have in the service of others? And then what does it mean to take risks to help? Maybe for some of us, it means letting go of a dream that we achieved or that we're on our way to achieving to let actually God maybe redirect a choice, redirect a career choice. Maybe for some of you as you're younger, as you're still contemplating, what am I gonna do when I grow up for a living? Maybe you're gonna start to study something and say, what would it mean for me to become a lawyer, to um, 
to become a, a politician, to be involved in civil service or government or social work or something like that, to say, I can make a difference, to take a risk, to say, I want my life to be used by God so that, because this is what it means to love our enemies, so that we so that no one lives and continues to live under the oppression of sin and systems that cause hatred, racism, and violence. As we close today in a few minutes, we're going to take communion together and Pastor Dave is going to lead us uh, in that. But first, the band's going to lead us in a song. It's a song that's written actually from the Lord's Prayer or some of you grew up in the tradition where it was called the Our Father. I want you to sing that song. If you don't know, you can just listen. Listen to the words in the context of what we've been talking about today. And the chorus just repeats this phrase, your love is strong, your love is strong, your love is strong. And I just want to invite you as you listen or as you sing along or whatever, that you would be reminded of just how strong the love of God is. Strong enough to actually enable us. It says at one point to, to see your kingdom come, to your will be done, that earth would begin to look a little bit more like heaven. And so even as you do that, just experience, I want to invite you to experience the love of God giving you strength.